Ephesians 5, 7 through 14. Um, I was going to read a longer portion of Scripture leading up to this, but I think I'm just going to paraphrase it for the sake of time because we got a lot of stuff that we're working through. Uh, last week, if you caught the podcast or you were here, uh, we ventured through Ephesians 4, and we ended at Ephesians 4.24. From Ephesians 4.24 to Ephesians 5.24, there's going to, um, Paul's going to write a massive list of do's and don'ts, okay? He's going to say, don't do this, don't do that, this is bad, this is bad, don't do this, this is bad, this is awful, this is bad, don't do this, make sure you don't do that, and everything in the dark is horrible, Okay? I know, such a positive piece of scripture. You can go back and read it for yourself. And the reason I say that is because in understanding the front side of this portion and the back side of this portion, understanding all these don'ts and do's and don'ts and do's, bad things, good things, we have to understand them in the light of what Paul's about to say right here in Ephesians 5, 7 through 14. Does that make sense? And we're going to read it right now and put it all together. It says this, Therefore, do not become their partners. He's talking about the things previously mentioned. For you were once darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Today, as we continue on in our series, Citizens and Saints, I want to speak to you from the subject, glow in the dark. Glow in the dark, as we look at what it means to shine bright in dark places. Will you pray with me just one more time this morning? Father, we love you. We worship you. I thank you for this amazing church. It is a privilege and an honor to pastor this church to show up every single weekend with people who are working through the process. God, no matter where we're at this morning in the process, no matter where we're at in our life, no matter where we're at in our faith, no matter where we're at in our doubt, God, today I pray that you would just unify us underneath the name that means everything, your name, Jesus. I pray that this morning we would be underneath that banner, and in that banner there is freedom. There is new life, there is new power. God, we thank you for what it is that you're doing in this place. We love you. We worship you in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and the church shouted, amen. Amen. The school year is officially over. Parents are still grieving. My wife and I are still grieving. Um, But I was remembering back to the first part of the school year when we put our kids in school, and we're going to quickly be coming up to that moment again as we we work through the summer and get get to August. But... My little daughter uh, entered into first grade this year. My son entered into second grade. And, uh, we, we, you know, it's hard, hard to be a parent when your kids are growing like that. It's, it's awful. Um, but with expectancy and excitement, we put them into their, uh, their grades, second grade for my son, first grade for my, for my daughter. Well, one afternoon, my, my daughter and my son were at aftercare at their school because Eric and I had a series of meetings that we had to be at, so we couldn't pick them up till later. So we show up at the school at about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, only to be met with a teacher who decided to let us know that Shiloh had gotten in trouble because she had engaged in an act of violence. And which I said, no, that's not possible for my daughter. She's perfect. She's an angel, which is so not true whatsoever. And so we were like, well, what, what happened? And uh, the teacher went on to tell us that Shiloh had decided to kick a boy where a boy doesn't want to be kicked. 
Now, at first mention of this reality, I leapt for joy on the inside, knowing that this would probably benefit us in the teenage years. So I was like, I'm good. This girl's good. It was perfect. But on the outside, as a, as a pastor and a man of God, I was like, no, wrong. So bad at my daughter. No, oh, you should be in trouble. And inside, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. And so... <laughs> So as we're walking out and we're trying to remain calm, we say to, we say to Shiloh, like, what would possess you to, to think that that was like, okay, like, what happened? Why would you do this? And this is what she said. He was up in my space. <laughs> to which, once again, will benefit me in the teenage years, I'm just saying. So we said, wait, wait a second, you just, like, kicked somebody there because, because he was in your space? Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> To which we then started to engage in a conversation that we have in our household many, many times, which is this. We say this a lot to our kids, and parishes don't do that, right? We say parishes don't lie. Parishes don't kick people in places they don't need to be kicked. Parishes don't do this. Parishes don't do that. Parishes don't do this. Parishes do this. We extend grace. We love people. We, we encourage. This is what the parish family is. And this is what Paul is actually saying in this whole massive piece of scripture. He's saying, listen, I need you to understand something. Is that as children of God, as, as, as being made in his image, as we profess faith in him, as we live our lives out, these, these lists of do's and don'ts is just God's way of saying, hey, listen, you guys don't do this. Why? Because you're children of the light, not the darkness. But this is a really hard thing for us to reconcile because if you're like me, I've talked with a lot of people and they tend to say the same thing. And this is the reason for not wanting to engage with God is that the Bible is just a rule book with a set of do's and don'ts and the demand to live perfectly. You ever been there before? Like if we could just be honest. Can, like the Bible has been underneath scrutiny for millennia. So can we just take a moment in, uh, here at the well to just hold it underneath another Another moment of scrutiny. Many of us believe this about the Bible. If we're honest about it, we go, well, yeah, it's just a, it's just a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts, and, and it's God's demand for us to live, live perfectly. But here's the thing. Perspective is everything, and understanding is even more. You see, at first glance, in isolation, this portion of Ephesians could feel a lot like demands for perfection. But this is where Ephesians 5, 7 through 14, is vital to our understanding. Paul is not advocating for perfection. He is not saying that we have to live perfectly. He is saying that we should live differently. That's the difference. He's saying that you're not in darkness anymore. You're in the light. And so because you're in the light, it should change the way that you do life. I'm not demanding that you live perfectly. I'm just simply saying that we need to live differently. I don't demand that the little parishes in my household live perfectly. But I do expect that they live differently. Why? Because there's something greater about their life. There's something on their life. There is a portion over their life. There is a purpose to their life. There is a grander theme over their life. And so because of that, I want to teach my children to live differently, not perfectly. And that's what it means to live in the light. To live in the light means that I am, my life, and the way and the direction that it goes can stand before God and say, this is me authentically. To live in the light means to live authentically. We get a lot of 
questions around here and almost like skepticism sometimes because of how open we are about things around here. This is why we're so open. This is why, like, when I talk about the things, listen, I am, I'm, a, I'm like I'm a human being. <laughs> that hurt. <laughs> right? But so many times we walk into church and we think pastors are, are, are robots of, of perfection and everybody else around them are robots of perfection. Why? Because we come in here with our, with our smiles and our nice Sunday best on, right? How's everything going? You're like blessed and highly favored. What does that even mean? <laughs> right? And then people freak out, right? When you go, when you go, how's everything going? You're like, it is burning down right now. <laughs> like life is a dumpster fire, and I do not know what to do with it. And then the person that you say that to goes, cool, me too. <laughs> and then there's something refreshing about that. And there's something refreshing in the place that we can worship Jesus dumpster fire and all. Like we can lift up his name because while life may be crumbling around us, we serve a God who never crumbles. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we worship in our imperfection. But how many of you know that because we worship in our perfection, we should leave here to live differently? That's the point. We're not perfect people. Just different. You're different. Turn to your neighbor this morning and say, you're different. <laughs> Turn to your other neighbor this morning and say, don't talk to me like that. <laughs> Watch what Philippians 2, 12 through 16 says. This is Paul writing once again. He's fascinated with lights. He says, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, uh, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. To glow in the dark is the design and desire for God, of God in our lives. He desires that we shine bright in our generation. A generation that's looking for hope, for truth, security, confidence, peace, and joy. We can't be the people of God, the people that he's called us to be, if we're not willing to do as the song says, this little light of mine. Come on. I'm gonna let it shine. Oh, we got church people this morning. This little light of mine. Hey, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Come on, somebody. That's awesome. We, <laughs> to be those people, to be those people, to glow in the dark, we have to understand some things that are very, very important to us. Not things about perfection. Just things about being different. So how do we know if we glow? That's what I want to talk about. I almost, I almost called this radioactive Christians, but that was a little negative. So. <laughs> so, so how do we know when we glow? Come on, help me out this morning. Every shot number one. The first, the first way that we know when we glow is this, is when we have learned to respond to the storms of life rather than react to the storms of life. When we have learned to respond to the storms of life rather than react to the storms of life. Long piece of scripture because I just need the Bible to work through all this, all right? So we see that this is Bible, not my opinion. It says this, Acts 27, 13 to 26. It says, when a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. 
But before long, a fierce wind called the Nor'easter rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Cotta, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. Fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along. Because we were being severely battered. I want you to hear the language that's being used, right? We were being severely battered by the storm. They began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. Come on, you ever felt that way before? (laughs) You ever been in the middle of a storm and you went, finally, all hope is fading? (laughs) That's not a fun place to be in. It's not a fun place to wake up and go, you know what, today, all hope is fading. This storm is, is rocking me. All hope is fading that we would be saved. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up, who wrote us Ephesians, all right, among them and said, you men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Watch this. Now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For last night an angel of God, I belong and serve, stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. Wouldn't you be like to be with Paul at that moment, right? So take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way he told me. But we have to run aground on some island. I love that. Paul is saying that the storm is still going to be the storm, but instead of simply reacting to it in fear like all the other sailors were, they could respond to it with faith and courage. Why? Because Paul had purpose on the other side of it. Paul had purpose on the other side of this storm. This is why I'm not afraid to fly. Because I believe 100% that there's still a purpose in my life. And until Jesus changes things, I'm safe on airplanes. Which makes me want to stand up and just be like, Paul, hey, just so you all know, this airplane's going to be fine. I'm on it. (laughs) Which would more than likely in the times that we live in get me kicked off the airplane. So I just stay quiet. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying we don't have to react to our storms. We can respond to them in, in faith. See, I think one of the greatest ways that we glow in the dark is by being people who learn to navigate and go through our storms well. I want you to hear this this morning. People are not so much impacted by what we recite, but rather how we respond. I can recite Bible verse after Bible verse. I can tell people what Psalm says and what Proverbs says and what Matthew says. I can recite things all day long. But how many of you know there's something different about my life if I respond in a way that is appropriate to the storm? That I, Many of us will recite things, but have you ever met the person that recites things, but when the storm hits, they ain't recite nothing? They're just reacting. They're freaking out. They're Jerry Maguiring their storm. Everything's crazy. Everything's hard. Everything's bad. They're reacting to it. And that's the difference. Many of us can recite all the nice things to say, but what, how do you respond in the midst of that real storm? I want to ask the question, can we get good at storms? 
Like how many of you, like this is my picture. This is how I think we should be. If we understand that Jesus is for us and not against us, when we go through a storm in life, we should be like that scene in the Titanic. We're just like, (laughs) come at me, storm. (laughs) Because we have so much faith. I don't need to recite anything. Just watch me respond. I don't think the world is needing Christians to recite anything anymore. I think the world needs us to respond appropriately. You've been saying a lot of things for, for history. Why don't we respond according to what you say you recite? I love how Paul helps the rest of the crew see that the storm is going to continue to rage, but they could be still. Paul could see this way because his response was from a place of purpose. Paul had a reason to get where he was going, and therefore the storm was nothing more than a distraction from his purpose. Allow that to anchor us. Could you imagine every storm that we walk through, all of a sudden we just start looking at the storm, and we're like, ah, you're just a distraction to my purpose. Why? Because I have a destination to get to, so I can get to the other side and sing it like Adele and be just like, hello from the other side. Like, that's what I want to be able to say. Right? That is... The deal, that's how I respond to my storms. Ah, God's got something greater for me. So storm, I may be in the midst of it. I don't need to recite a bunch of things. I just need to respond with faith and understand that there's a promise to get to the other side of it. Come on, I want to encourage some people this morning. Reaction is what happens when we don't have a perspective of purpose to anchor ourselves with. We glow in the dark when our ability to respond to our storms becomes greater than our desire to simply react to them. But come on, we've all reacted before, haven't we? How do we know? Well, let's just peg us all down. How do we know when we've reacted to a storm versus respond? Well, we have a tendency in reactionary living to do a couple things. First one is this, say things that we didn't really mean to say. You ever done that before? You ever just said something and you're like, get back. We have a tendency in reactionary living to do things that we really didn't mean to do. We say things, we do things, and here's the third one that we do. We have a tendency to believe things that we don't really believe. It's amazing how many conversations I've sat in with people where they tell me, they articulate their belief system, and I'm not even talking about faith, just the things that they believe about life and themselves and stuff, but just their belief system, they say it, and I don't know if you've ever said this before, I ask the question, I go, you don't really believe that, do you? And this is what they say, no, but it's all I have right now. Why? Because in reactionary living, we have a tendency to say things that we don't mean to say, do things that we don't mean to do, and believe things that we don't really believe. We actually have a tendency in reactionary living. Somebody needs to hear this this morning. Reactionary living causes us to reject truth most times. Because truth is harder to assimilate than just simply going off my feelings. It's truth and the feelings. In the, in the new series that's coming up, hashtag all the feels, we're going to be talking about this idea. <laughs> How to live life not completely anchored in our feelings, but rather truth in our relationships. Come on, somebody. That's, that's, we need this. This is reactionary living. But here's what I want you to understand. Positive, K-love, encouraging moment this morning. If you're not in a storm now, you will be in one. What'd you learn in church today? Oh, I'm about to hit a storm. <laughs> I believe in offense, though, right? I believe in understanding these things. So if I can negotiate life going, hey, man, there's going to be storms that are going to come, but I can anchor myself differently like Paul. I can stand. 
on the bow of my ship in the middle of the storm and say, hey, listen, everything is going to be okay. Why? Because I have another side that I got to get to. So the first way that we glow in the dark is when we have learned to respond rather than the act. Number two, every shot number two. Second one is this. Second way we glow in the dark is when what we know becomes who we are. When what we know becomes who we are. Matthew 16, 13 through 19 says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Look at the question. Hear the question today. Jesus is going, I want you to tell me what pop culture is saying. Tell me what everybody around you is saying. What is everybody else saying about me? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then watch, he flips the question. He says, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Who do you believe that I am? So Simon Peter, the ADD one in the group, jumps over everybody as the teacher's pet. And he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What's happening? Peter allowed what he knew to assimilate itself into his heart, and it became a confession. He confessed who Jesus was, and upon that confession, watch what happens. Jesus then tells Peter who he is. Peter could have just kept it head knowledge. Jesus could have said, who do you say that I am? And Peter could have even said, well, theologically speaking and doctrinally speaking, and according to the Greek and the Hebrew, you are this, 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 and this, and this. Don't we do that? But Peter didn't do that. He stumbled over himself to make a confession of what was taking place, moving from his head to his heart. And all, the, all of a sudden, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the coming one, the Son of God, who is going to make all things new and is going to make a miracle in motion happen. You are that God. And upon that confession, Peter's life changed. You are no longer Peter. You are now the rock that I will build this church upon, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter's knowing became his being. And this is an important transition that many of us need to make in our lives. You see, one of the greatest byproducts of this truth assimilated in our lives is that as our knowing becomes our being, when what we know becomes who we are, one of the greatest byproducts is that we become consistent. I know, sexy word this morning. <laughs> Some of you are tripped out that I just said sexy. <laughs> Wait till the relationship series. <laughs> Hashtag all the feels. <laughs> See, not many of us wake up in the morning and go, you know what, today, today I hope I'm consistent. Some of us do, the weird ones in the group, right? <laughs> we don't wake up every single day and, you know, hope today is just a day of consistency. My greatest aspiration in life is to be consistent. No. Many of us say, I want to be free. I just want to live on the wild side of life. I just want to do. I don't want any constraints. I just want to be. 
I want to climb the corporate ladder. I want to do this. I want to do all these different things. Consistency is not something that we necessarily strive towards. But here's the interesting thing. Consistency is the best place you could be in life. And when what I know becomes who I am, I then become consistent in every situation that I find myself in. Let me argue it from this perspective. You all love consistency. The proof is in the restaurants that you choose to go to. Right? You choose the restaurant that you go to. Why? Because of consistency. We have a, favorite, a couple favorite restaurants. The reason there are favorites, the reason that I become a creature of habit with those restaurants is not because I'm a creature of habit. I actually love change. Change it all really quick. I'm good with it. Right? But I go to the restaurant. Why? Because every single time I know I will get good food. Right? So I send others there. Why? Because I know that they'll get good food. We take guests there. Why? Because I know that they're going to get good food. Consistency. Notice that Jesus says, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. How many of you know that having a consistent God who never changes, who never fluctuates according to who everybody else says he is, is the God that you want to serve in the midst of everything that's potentially falling down around us? I need consistency. So we know that we glow and what we know becomes who we are. Consistency is the strongest position that we can live our life from. You know, when I die, I pray. I mean, there's going to be a myriad of things like, that are hopefully said about me. But I think one of the greatest things that can be said about me by my wife and my kids is not that he was the cool dad, not that he was this, that. Not like he was like the best looking guy in our family. Not any of that stuff. I hope my wife and my kids can say, my dad, my husband, was always there. I could rely on him. I, I, I pray for my leadership here at the well. That you, as a church, can say, you know what? Jason's not the best of speakers and the best of this and the best of that and the best of this. But he could be relied upon. I think good leadership is consistent leadership. Come on, somebody. Good leadership in our homes is consistent leadership. Being a good employee is about a, being a consistent employee. Being a good employer is about being a consistent employee. Am I talking to some people this morning? Consistency is such a massive value, and it happens when what we know becomes who we are. And when it comes to our faith, being consistent in our faith, we find consistency when what we know becomes who we are. If I know Jesus is faithful, then I can stand in his faithfulness. Why? Because what I know is becoming who I am. Number three. Come on, everybody shout number three. The last one is this. The third way we know when we glow is when who we are and what we do are not divided. When who we are and what we do are not divided. Watch 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 18. And it says this, Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servants said to him, You see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the, the lyre, or the lyre, however you want to say it. I want you to see Saul's command. Look for somebody who plays this instrument. Whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play, and you will feel better. Then Saul commanded his servants, watch me, 
Find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. Watch what happens. One of the young men answered, one of his servants, and said, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. But then he goes on. This is what I find fascinating. He is also a valiant man. Well, I didn't ask for a valiant man. I just asked for somebody who played well. He's a warrior. And I didn't ask for a warrior. I asked him for somebody who plays well. He's eloquent. I don't care about eloquence. I just wanted somebody who plays well. He's handsome. What has that got to do with me? And then he says this, and the Lord is with him. See, I find it interesting that David couldn't be separated into boxes. Saul wanted somebody who played well. But people recognize David as all of these things. See, for many of us in life, we have a tendency to do something, especially as Americans, we do this really well. It's called compartmentalizing. We have our boxes. We have our work box. We have our friend box. We have our church box, right? We have our, and you list the boxes, many of these boxes. We have different friend boxes. We have different boxes all over the place. And have you ever noticed that when we try to mitigate these boxes from bumping into each other or colliding, it causes us to live very frantically, doesn't it? We call it compartmentalizing. I call it fragmented living. Because we weren't meant to compartmentalize. This is what David's showing us. We weren't meant to live in separate boxes. Oh, this is my friend box, but this is my my church box, so I live one way with my friends in my friend box, and I live another way in my church box and in my work box, and then I scurry about making sure that these boxes don't collide. Oh, well, no, because if my friend box bumped into my church box, we're going to have some issues because them boxes are going to explode. And if I let my church box collide with my work box, then we're going to have some issues there. And so I live fragmented in each of these boxes, trying to keep it all together, trying to make sure that I look how I need to look in these different places. But what God is saying is that you're not supposed to live in a box. You're supposed to live life whole. Who you are is who you are because who you are is who he said you are. You know, as a pastor and as a leader, hopefully, I'm the same here as I am at home. And I actually do that on purpose. Who you see our family to be is who we are. And I don't do that for you. I do that for my kids. Because I would hate to find myself in a position where my children hate this place because who I am here is different than who I am at home. Compartmentalizing. To which everybody here can shake their head, yeah, that totally makes sense. And you agree with me, right? Until we then put it into our life context. Then we go, ooh, that hurts. David couldn't be separated into a good player. As a good player, you had to understand what you got with a good player. You got a valiant man. You got a warrior. You got somebody of eloquence. You got somebody who was handsome, and the Lord was with him. So the third way that we go 
glow. We know that we glow when who we are and what we do are not invited. David knew this truth. The Bible's communicating to us is that we're not to be internally divided, but rather intrinsically united. Our lives, when lived out of a place of personal unity, held together by our faith in Christ, become lives of purpose, strength, vitality, and continuity. We then experience what the Bible would call a blessed life. How many of you have heard that term before? Show of hands, come on. How many of you have heard the term a blessed life? If you're like me, if I'm honest, whenever I hear this term, I kind of just shirk. And I'll tell you why. Because there's been one definition predominantly spoken about as having a blessed life. Right? So we believe a blessed life is is that I'm I'm healthy and I'm wealthy and I have a six-pack of abs and I'm never sick. Okay? That's actually not what the Bible talks about. To be blessed, according to the Bible, is not that. To be blessed, biblically, is to have continuity in life. And that only takes place when we're no longer living fragmented. And that's why we sing a a hymn that says, It is well with my soul, because I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Now hopefully you can connect all, like get all the tissue connected here, because then you stand in a storm, and you go, man, dumpster fire of life right now but I am blessed. See how that's possible? That, that way it doesn't become a mind bend anymore. You know, like, how, how does that work? How do I have a dumpster fire of life and still be blessed? Because there's continuity in your life because you're not fragmented anymore because he's constant and you're constant and you're responding to your storm and it's all connecting. And so then I can stand in the midst of everything that is happening in my life and say, it is well with my soul. It is all burning down around me, but it is well in my soul. I Things aren't adding up the way that I want them to, but it is well with my soul. It doesn't look the way that I want it to, but it is well with my soul. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. That, church, is how we glow in the dark. I want to glow in the dark. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, says something very significant to us. It says this, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I'm going to ask everybody to not crack their glow stick yet. 9 a.m. was completely rebellious. I just want you to pull it out. I want to illustrate something for us this morning. I asked the guys to turn all the lights down. You are a city set on a hill, a bright light for the world to see. In dark places is where we've been called to shine bright. The funny thing is is that many of us are just simply trying to shine bright in already light places. But we've been called to shine bright in dark places. And when one light shines in a dark place, 
it actually brings quite a bit of light. I can't take credit for this, but I need to steal it from somebody who spoke to me after the 9 a.m. through this illustration, and I want you to see this light. It's shining bright right now, right? But even in the midst of it shining bright, there's still imperfections in it. There's still little bubbles, areas where it's not shining as bright as it could be. And for many of us, we say, oh man, I've got all these imperfections still, so I need to hide my light. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I will still shine bright through you, even in the imperfections. You just gotta let your light shine. No, but you don't understand those imperfections that they, they cause shame. It doesn't matter. I took your shame. I took your guilt. I put it on the cross. Shine bright. So one light can shine bright. But what happens if two or three or four or five or six or seven or a couple hundred or a couple thousand started to shine bright in here. What if you started to let your light shine bright in the midst of a dark situation? What if you started to let your light shine bright in the middle of your business? What if you started to let your light shine bright in the middle of your school, in the middle of your workplace, in the middle of your neighborhood, in the middle of your city? What if God said, I want the well to shine bright in dark places? As we let our light shine, everything is changed. So come on, church, let's stand to our feet right now and let's ask God to allow us to give us the strength necessary to shine bright. Come on, let's